The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Now, when we study God's Word, whenever we study God's Word, there's always a little bit of tension between doctrine and practice. And the tension is this, that it's, we have a tendency to, to kind of gravitate to one or the other. We get into the doctrine and, and we fill our minds with a lot of head knowledge, a lot of truth, but it doesn't necessarily come out in our life and in our behavior. Or on the other hand, we, we spend no time thinking about doctrine and we instead just look for a list of things to do. You know, just give me a checklist, give me something to do, and, and I will be happy with that. Um, but oftentimes that's disjointed from the truths of Scripture, and that's not what the Bible wants for us. We've seen in other times, we've seen when we did the uh, series a couple years ago on Ephesians, that Paul, as a writer, oftentimes ties, most of the time, ties doctrine and practice together. In Ephesians, it was very clear. The first three chapters were, were largely doctrinal. The next three chapters uh, began with a therefore and then um, the practical instruction that comes out of those truths. Same thing in Romans where you have 11 chapters of, of hardcore doctrine followed by a therefore and then instruction in how to live. This is one of those passages that contains both. Although Paul does it in a little different, uh, a different order. He starts with the instruction, and then he gives us the theological basis for that instruction. And it is a massive theological basis. There's no way today we're going to be able to, to uh, plumb the depths, but we'll try to, uh, try to cover the high points and get the important things uh, down for us. Okay, so let's begin. Um, and if you're a note taker, the first point today is simply titled "Unity and Humility." We'll see this in verses one through four. Now, it begins in verse one with the word "so." So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, well, that word "so" is pointing back. So I'll just say a word about that. If you go up a few verses. We covered this a couple of weeks ago where he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So as he talks about that, he now comes to the point of so, and he gives us here four ifs. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy... So it's going to be an if-then. If there's any of these things, then I'm going to tell you what to do. Now, the way the grammar is, is, um, is constructed in the original language, uh, these are conditional statements. If this, then that, okay? Um, in this case, the grammatical structure could really be rendered since. In other words, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort from love, and there is, so what, 
what the passage is giving to us is what one commentator calls shared gospel blessings. There's four of them here. These are blessings that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, and we have in him. It, is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. That word encouragement literally means one who's called alongside of. And you know how it is when you need encouragement. You have someone come alongside of you and offer you words of, of comfort and words of, of uplift and things like that, and you appreciate that person called alongside. Not, not talking down to you, not lecturing you, but just they're right there, they're listening, and they're, they're beside you. In the same way, Jesus promised before he, uh, before he died, he promised that when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit. And he, he called the Holy Spirit the parakletos, the one called alongside of. So is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes, it's the Holy Spirit living in us. Any comfort from love in the same way the Spirit comforts us and we receive comfort from one another in the body of Christ. If there is any participation in the Spirit, that word means fellowship, sharing things in common. And we have a commonality because of the Holy Spirit, we share things in common. We, we have some participation with the Spirit there. And then if there is any affection and sympathy. That's one of the things that I think we all enjoy the most about community here is that there's a, there's a great deal of affection. There's a great deal of sympathy or simpatico where we, we feel, we, we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. And our prayer is always, as, as Paul said earlier in Philippians, that our love would abound more and more. And so that's what we strive for as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have that affection and sympathy for one another. Now, out of these shared gospel blessings, they lead us to a shared mindset. So Paul says, if there's any of these things, and there is, Verse 2, complete my joy, that you could even put the word then. If then, if there's this, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Just underline how many expressions there of, of unity are, are being expressed. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. These are the things that will complete Paul's joy. He's in prison, prone to discouragement perhaps from time to time. But he also knows that's what's, God, that's what's God's plan for him at that time. And his joy will be filled when he sees this body of believers uh, working together in unity. Now, how do we do that? Well, it goes on in verse 3 to tell us a little bit more of the, the practical how. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What Paul is driving towards here is humility. And he tells us 
Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's how we do humility. We think of others more than ourselves. Now, notice here it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. That's a very superlative expression, and it really means each and every one of you. This is not going to work. If half of us have this mind and half of us have a selfish mind, it's not going to work in your marriage. It's not going to work in your relationships. It's not going to work in the, in the church. But each of us has to take a responsibility to think of the other person more highly. So it, it's all, almost going to be like, no, you go first. No, I insist. You go first. And nobody ever enters the door because we're all pushing the other person ahead of us. But that's kind of the idea, although not that, in not that quite ridiculous manner. All right. So let's go to the, the second point here. And we'll title this Jesus and Humility. We see this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now I'll say a couple things about this. Now, th there's a turn here. Before, in verse uh, 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Now he says, have this mind among yourselves. Now it's, it's collective. The idea is in your church fellowship, this should be the mind, the one mind. The mind that was in Christ Jesus. Now, the uh, ESV, which we use most of the time, um, actually, I actually don't like the rendering here where it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, that's not the best translation. Literally, it just says, which also in Christ Jesus. There's no possessive there. There's no idea of this mind is yours in Christ Jesus, which is true, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, have the mind that Christ Jesus had, that, that was in Christ Jesus. The message reads it this way. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. That's the simple instruction here. So as we think about humility, this is the key, is to think on how Jesus Christ lived and worked and, ha and how his plan and ministry um, worked out. And all of us, collectively, let's have that mind. Let's encourage one another towards that, that mind of humility. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, um, a very prolific preacher and writer back in the last century. And he was one time asked, Pastor, how can I have humility? And he said, well, he says, I can't really tell you what to do to have humility. I can't give you a list of things to check off. Because if you did all those things, you would be proud of yourself for doing them and then not have any humility about it. And so this is what he said. 
There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. You look at him, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. That's the key. This is the turn now in this, in this instruction where he's given us you know, all these things that we, did, we need to be thinking about of the same mind, same love, uh, considering others more than ourselves. And how do we do this? Well, we have the same mind of Jesus Christ. This is what he's going to focus on in the rest of this passage. And it is almost as if Paul gets caught up in just the grandeur of the truths he has here and launches into one of, one of the key theological passages in all of the New Testament. But this will be, it, it's kind of odd. It's, it's this critical passage of doctrine, but the main point is the instruction that came before. So we're going to see that as we go through. But let's go to that third point, and uh, we'll call this humiliation and exaltation, and that'll be verses 6 through 11. And as we read these, I want you to, I want you to pay attention uh, to something in the text. This is um, what is known as a chiastic form, or a chiasmus. And that's spelled C-H-I-A-S-M-U-S. Uh, fancy word, but it, it's somewhat of a, uh, a fairly common structure in Scripture and in other literature. And in this case, you simply have uh, a section that we, would, we could label A, and then there's a B, and then there's another A. All right? Very simple. Uh, you can get more involved uh, chiastic structure where it might be A, B, C, D, C, B, A. You get the point? All right, And the way we read a chiastic structure like this, or a chiasmus, is that the middle point is the important point. Now, most of the time in the West, when we write, when we write something, it, it's usually our first sentence that's the most important, or the last sentence that's the most important. But it's the middle portion of a chiasmus that, that, that is elevated as we read this. So as I read it, see if you can, see if you can pick it out in your mind, the, the ABA format. This is a real simple one, but it's just a longer passage. All right, verse 6. Who, Jesus, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it? The A is exaltation. The B is humiliation. And the second A is exaltation again. It starts with Jesus being in the form of God, exalted. 
It goes through his humiliation and then on to his, his subsequent exaltation. So let's talk about those. In verse 6 here, the first part of verse 6, we see the first elevation or exaltation of Jesus when it says that he was, though he was in the form of God. Now, not to get too technical here, but the word uh, was in the form of God. It's not just the, in the Greek, it's not just the simple um, word for to be. You know, I learned the parts of speech for, for English, is, are, was, were, be, being, been. It's not that. It's a word that's stronger. It's a word that means ex to exist. Um, and so some translations um, translate it that he was, had his being or that he existed in the form of God. That's the idea there. It, it denotes what was from the beginning permanently identified with that nature and character. This is as strong a statement as you will find in the New Testament of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's saying Jesus is God, eternally and forever existing as God. Um, the word here for form means his nature. It's the essence of the person. He's the perfect expression of the perfect essence. Christ existed essentially one with God. And so even though he was in the form of God, he was God himself, he emptied himself. Now we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want you to think back a few years ago. We did a, a, a series on our fifth Sundays on the Trinity and you might remember that, but we talked about in, in, in discussing the Trinity, we even had a, a diagram coming from the, the Athanasian Creed that um, had God in the middle. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But there's only one God. Okay? Um, I can tell you there's no way we can understand that. No way we can grasp that. And I, I believe that when we, when we study God's word, when we get closer to the nature and being of God, there's always going to be mystery. There's always going to be more mystery the closer we get. And so don't even try to have an analogy or anything like that because none of them work. They all lead you to some kind of heresy or something like that. Jesus was God and existed, excuse me, existed at, in the form of God. But now we come to his humiliation. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we have to be very careful here because sometimes the cults look at that and they kind of downplay this, this idea of the form of God. Like he wasn't really God. He was just sort of a copy. But he didn't, he didn't feel like equality with God was something he needed to attain. That's what the cults will tell you. And they deny the deity of Christ. But what this is telling us, he did not count equality with, with God a thing to be grasped. And if you have, if you have the uh, English Standard Version... 
uh, there's a footnote there that it could read a thing to be held in advantage. So the idea is that equality with God is something that Jesus has, but he didn't think it something that he should hold on to for his own advantage. And this is really, this is really uh, hearkening back to verse 4 where the instruction is, think of others more important than yourself. Don't look only to your own interests, but the interests of others. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't think equality with God something to be grasped, but he thought of others. And so it goes on to say that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, when we hear that term emptied himself, we also have to be careful here to think that when he became man, when Jesus was incarnated to walk this earth, as, as the Gospel of John says, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. When that happened and he emptied himself, it does not mean that he ceased to be God or he became less God. What the creeds have affirmed down through the centuries and, and early in the history of the Christian church, the issue was, who is Jesus? Because there were a lot of false teaching uh, being thrown out there, that he wasn't God or that he wasn't fully man or, I mean, all kinds of things. So the early creeds really tried to identify and nail this down as to who Jesus was. And the idea is fully God, fully man. That too is something that we have a tough time grasping and understanding, but it's something that, that the Bible reveals to us. So the text is very clear here what it means to empty himself. It means he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now the incarnation itself was a type of humiliation. You read the Gospels, and all throughout uh, the Gospels, Jesus is reviled, he's persecuted, he's not accepted by many people, except for uh, people who want to get their bellies filled or, or their sicknesses healed and things like that. But he was not really recognized uh, as God among us. And um, eventually the humiliation led to the death on a cross, which we'll talk about in, in a couple minutes here. But I want you to think about this. Just the fact that he took on flesh. So here's the Son of God, eternally existent with the Father and the Spirit, God three in one, the second person of the Trinity, outside of time, outside of space, the creator of time and space and all things that exist. And he's eternal, he's unbound, and suddenly he becomes an embryo. 
and he is bound by time and space and he grows and has to deal with, with the growth and becoming a child and growing up and all these things. I, we think about, okay, if, if suddenly I were turned into an ant, you know, that doesn't even begin to compare with, with the, the length to which Jesus stooped to reach us. And that's the point. There was no limit to what Jesus would do to redeem his people. So he emptied himself. Now, what can we say in summary uh, just about the, the doctrine of, of this thing? Just to kind of reiterate. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is fully God from all eternity. When he became man, when Jesus became man, he did not cease being God. In his incarnation, the divine was not turned to flesh, as one of the, uh, the creeds say, but it was by God taking humanity to himself. And when he emptied himself, he didn't become less God. He just yielded the free exercise of his divine uh, divine characteristics. His glory was veiled. Sometimes uh, much of his power was veiled. Um, there was one case where um, Jesus took a couple of his closest disciples, a few of them up on a mountain. You remember that? And he suddenly was transfigured before them and he, he, his glory was shining bright white. And, and for a moment they got a glimpse of a, a little closer glimpse of his deity and his, his form as, as the Godhead. But then he, he veiled it again to the point where most people didn't even recognize that he was God. He looked like an everyday man. And then in the, in the grandest piece of his humiliation. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was the grand humiliation. He submitted to the will of the Father and was obedient to that will. Now this is what we call the, the passive obedience of Christ. Throughout his entire life, he kept the law perfectly. We say this often. It's so that his righteousness could become ours. But in his entire life, he never sinned. He kept the law perfectly. This is what we call the active obedience of Christ. But the, the passive obedience is his obedience to the Father who sent him to bear our sins. And he was obedient to the point of death the text here says, even death on a cross, pointing out to us what his readers would have clearly known is that the uh, death by crucifixion was the worst possible death there could be. Excruciatingly painful, torturously long, and on top of that, shameful. A person crucified was stripped down to nothing or next to nothing and, and hung up there for everyone to see and to mock and to throw uh, vegetables and things like that. 
um, very shameful. But beyond this, more than that was his submission to divine wrath. For while he hung there, the father forsook him. Remember, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because in that time, God the Father was placing on him the sins that we have all committed so that he paid the price that we don't have to. There was no length to which Jesus would not go to redeem his people. That is the reason why we are told to be humble and to think of others ahead of ourselves because that's what Jesus was doing for us. How can we possibly do less? How can we possibly look at Jesus and what he did and really let that sink in and then look at our life as believers in community and then try to elevate ourselves. We can't do it. Christ's death, Christ's humiliation becomes not just the example, but the power to do that. Well, then finally, the last part of our, of our journey is, is Jesus from exalted to humiliation to now exalted again. And we see this in verses Nine, and, uh, 9 through 11. Therefore, because of his humbling work, God highly exalted him. Now we celebrate the resurrection as we should. We do so every Sunday by meeting on the first day of the week. We celebrate it especially in, in uh, the Easter season and the Lenten season. We, we celebrate that resurrection, that victory over sin and hell and death and the grave. But that wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. For he ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, exalted as king over all. Now that's true. It's true now, but there's a not yet part of that. God will put all enemies under his feet. God will bring all things in subjection to Christ and unify all things in, in Jesus Christ. And there are two responses to this. There's submission and confession. We see the submission in verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will submit to the lordship of Christ. And then confession, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now what shall you be this day? There will be those who have submitted to the lordship of Christ, received from him the gift of forgiveness, and justification received it by the empty hands of faith who now recognize and hopefully that's that's most everybody hopefully it's everybody in this room and we we understand now and we will bow willingly before him and confess joyfully that he is king of kings and lord of lords but there will be those his enemies 
who will reluctantly bow the knee, who will reluctantly confess, yeah, he is the Lord. Which will you be this day? Now, Paul points us to Christ, not just for the doctrinal clarity. And I would encourage you to study this passage more in depth. Get some commentaries or uh, good ones, anyway, <laughs> theologies, and, and dive in more to what, it, what this deity of Christ means. But that's not Paul's main point. His point is he wants to fuel our life in our fellowship, in our community, that we have the life of humility. And the deeper Paul goes into this doctrine of Christ, the louder this call to humility shouts at us. He could have just stopped at verse, uh, verse 5, have, the, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which was in Christ Jesus, and just do a little short little sentence about that and then move on. But he, he went into such depth so that it would shout at us that we dare not be elevating ourselves in our church. Now, I don't have any questions today for us to, uh, to ponder. I think we really have enough to ponder. But I do have a reading. And as I said, in the early church, um, much of the early creeds had to do with the, with the deity of Christ, the deity and humanity of Christ, the, the nature of the Trinity, and so on. So what I would like us to do is to declare as one what we confess. And so I'll put up a portion of the uh, Nicene Creed. This, this came about in AD 325. So some of the language is going to be a little cumbersome because it's like 1,700 years ago. Um, but the church down through the ages has declared this, this truth, has made this confession of what we believe as one about Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I'd like us to read this together, and then uh, I'll lead us into a time of communion. So let's, uh, let's confess our faith together reading. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us people and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again to judge to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Amen. As we come to the, the Lord's table, 
On the night that Jesus instituted the bread and the cup, John tells us that they gathered, Jesus with his disciples, gathered in an upper room. And as was the custom, there would normally have been a servant who would have washed the guests' feet because as they walked about, their feet would get dirty. But there was no one to wash their feet. Not one of the disciples stood up to do that. And so Jesus took off his cloak, took a basin of water, knelt down, and washed each of his disciples' feet like the lowliest of servants. Then he got up and put his cloak back on and came back and sat down and said, now, do you understand what I've done for you? And it wasn't just in that moment of washing the feet. This is the question we want to ask ourselves. Jesus is asking, do you understand what I have done for you? I left the throne of glory. I came and humiliated myself to the point of death on a cross and now I take it back up and I'm exalted over all. As we come to the table today, think on those things. Be, be joyful as we do. Think about how, how great it is that we all get to do this. We all get to come to the table. Think about the body and the blood of Christ shed and broken for us and that we get to share in that together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll have a minute or so of, of silent reflection. And uh, when I get up, that'll be your signal that the tables are open. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this uh, truth that we've heard today. Lord, I pray that it would impress upon us again and again just how wonderful it is that we have Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, as our Savior. Thank you for your body broken for us, for your blood spilled out for us, that we may walk as brothers and sisters, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We thank you, bless you in your name. Amen.